What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. You're listening to the Bay Network. <laughs> we invite people of all backgrounds to share their stories. Through nuanced conversations and forward thinking and not taking ourselves too seriously. Everyone's story matters. Every voice is important. Life is polarizing, but not everything is black and white. Come join us as we fade to gray. Welcome. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Fade to Gray. It is I, let me crank up that energy a little bit for you. It is I, the host, co-host of Fade to Gray, Omar Williams, here with my wife, Elizabeth. Say hello. Hey. And our favorite, Christopher Cody Grace, down there. Hey, what's going on? Chilling like a villain. How is everybody doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. <laughs> I'm processing like a, several that is- books that... Uh, I'm processing several books that I've been reading and it's kind of driving me nuts that I can't talk about that because they don't have anything to do with what we're going to talk about today. So I'm trying to pull myself together here. Man, this is great <laughs> podcasting. Yeah. Thanks I know, a lot, right? Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, no worries. No worries. It's all good. Cast system in the US. You guys really got to read that book. Well, well, I'm doing good, Omar. Thank you for asking. And uh, I'm ready to get into the talk today with uh, Sue. I remember Sue from episode seven. I think you'll probably talk about that here in a second, but uh, yeah, I'm really excited to, uh, to get into it about Israel and Palestine. I think it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Um, Sue was on, Suzanne was on for episode seven, which she did great. Um, We did not. So we'll cover a lot of the meat of that conversation in here. She's kind of introducing what she does. Um, The reason Suzanne came back on my mind uh, this week was because I was doing a deep dive into some podcast about the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Um, somebody in our group, Joe, shout out to Joe, made a comment earlier in the week um, after, I, th- I believe it was Israel, I forget who bombed who first earlier in this week, I'm sure uh, Suzanne probably let us know, but um, when that first, it was like Monday, um, so I think it was Sunday night, somebody got bombed. And so Monday he made it the comment. So I wanted to know more because I, most of us, if you grew up in evangelical or even in America, there's a very strong pro-Israel uh, political thing or in, within the evangelical church. Um, I Zion, do. baby. <laughs> and and so um, growing up, I always just heard one side of the narrative. And then it wasn't actually until I first met Sue, or we first had uh, episode seven, where I heard a different perspective, and it really kind of opened up my eyes. And ever since then, I've been more open-minded to this conflict because I had no clue what was actually going on. Um, got a little bit of the history of the conflict, and then like early in the week, I'm like, wait a minute, what am I doing? I'm like trying to like get all these different sources, but I was like, I know somebody who's lived in the Middle East for 17 years. Has she's the executive director of Beirut and Beyond, which basically works uh, with pa- pa- Palestinian refugees in Jordan and Lebanon. Um, and she's here today with, and she brought a friend of hers who, well, they say they're not friends. We'll see how this goes. Um, <laughs> some, some, uh, um, S- Steve Phillips, who is on uh, on the board of directors, I believe, with Be- Beirut and Beyond, is also a lawyer, lived in Cairo and has some other credentials. He's like 
apparently a nerd. So um, we're going to get an education today. And I'm very excited that uh, uh, Suzanne agreed to do this last minute. And um, yeah, what did I miss uh, in your in introduction there, Sue? Lots. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you, Omar. I so I have been working in the Middle East for the past seventeen years in Palestinian refugee camps, um, and Beirut Beyond is an organization set up to benefit Palestinian refugees in the Middle East. We partner with national organizations that are Palestinian-led and Palestinian-run, and we provide what they request, whether that be a project or manpower. Um, or finances. And in the US, we focus on education, education on Palestinian refugee narrative, which uh, people have been very interested in this week, believe it or not. I, I believe it. I'm, I'm interested and I'm glad that you're here and educate us. So <laughs> you say you work with uh, Palestinians. So are you a terrorist then? <laughs> wow. First question. Wait, way, way to lead, uh, Omar. Way to like get people like interested. That's why she brought her lawyer on. Is That's so why she can, you know, <laughs> can let her know if she can answer that question or not. <laughs> but but that, that is a common narrative, though, right? You hear, um, depending on what news source you listen to here in the U.S., like yeah, um, of course it is. You know, it deflects from the actual what's actually happening on the ground. Um, and, you know, Steve's here because he is, by all means, a geopolitical nerd and has a lot of knowledge of Middle East politics. Um, but I, when you contacted me this week, I was pretty rough with you because you were like, yeah, let's talk about this and this and this. I'm like, nope, I'm going to talk about Palestinian refugees <laughs> and, and what the, the core of this, which is the occupation. Um, because we're not, I, I don't think in the United States, we're not having the right conversation about this. Um, I think that we're, we're, we, we're focused on terrorism or Hamas when we don't know who they are, but we're not focused on what the root cause. Can we get some of these terms out of the way real quick? What the exactly. hell is Hamas? Or what's the occupation? The first thing you, you said. Sure, Steve. <laughs> sure. You know, uh, I'll try and compress it quickly, but, you know, in 1947, the United Nations decided that they were going to partition um, what had previously been British occupied territory in the Middle East called the, the Palestine Mandate or British Mandatory Palestine. Um, they agreed to split that into two states, uh, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. They drew some borders up and they decided, you know, took a vote and they're okay, we're gonna do that. So in May of 1948, yesterday was the uh, 73rd anniversary of it. Um, the state of Israel was declared. Uh, there were hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who were forced off their lands in the ensuing combat. Um, there was combat because, um, you know, five other Arab nations attacked, uh, you know, pal mandatory Palestine and tried to prevent that the state of Israel from being formed. They failed. And then uh, Israel declared its borders. They were broader borders, more expansive than what had been uh, uh, prescribed by the United Nations the year before. But they held on to those borders um, more than they were allocated under the partition plan. And then in 1967, can I add something? Because yeah. I'll add the refugee aspect. So in 1948, when the state of Israel was created, 
you had a population of Palestinians that lived in Palestine that was 1.5 million. 750,000 were displaced, either forcibly removed or fled during fighting. So half of a population is now displaced. So something traumatic is happening, right? Okay. Let me just ask you this real quick. During that 1948 Arab-Israeli war, uh, did Jordan not gain Jerusalem? So they took over the West Bank of the Jordan River, uh, which had previously been in mandatory Palestine. Uh, and that included East Jerusalem as well, which is the old, involves the old city that, you know, has all the uh, religiously, well, not all, but has all the, you know, places that are most significant religiously. So Jordan took that over in, uh, in that war. And at the same time, Israel, or sorry, uh, Egypt took over the Gaza Strip. And they occupied those militarily until uh, the Yom Kippur War in, I'm sorry, not the Yom Kippur, the Six-Day War in 1967. Uh, in that war, the Israelis pushed out the Egyptians from Gaza. They pushed out the Jordanians from the West Bank. And they actually pushed into Egypt all the way up to the Suez Canal. They took over the entire Sinai Peninsula. In 1973, the Egyptians staged a surprise attack uh, during Yom Kippur, which is the, the high holy holiday for, for Jews. Um, caught them by surprise. And even though they lost that war, uh, in part due to uh, some American air support that was given uh, to the Israelis, um, that they, they then were able a few years later to strike a peace deal. And so in exchange for uh, offering peace, they got back the Sinai. Um, and since that time, uh, Gaza and the West Bank have been under Israeli occupation. Then in 2005, um, the Israelis withdrew from Gaza for reasons we could discuss later if it ever gets important. But uh, Gaza's about 70% refugees from what is now the state of Israel. So... The second major displacement of refugees happened in the Six-Day War in 1967. You had another 325, about 1,000 Palestinians displaced. Now, 125,000 of those, like almost a third, over a third, were, a re- were refugees from 1948. So they were double refugees. They were, du- they were doubly displaced. And so the refugees that he's talking about, the population in Gaza, Gaza has a population of 1.9 million. 1.4 million are registered as refugees with the UN. They are not from Gaza. They were put into Gaza. So keep that in mind. When when people have conversations about Gaza, they never talk about that issue, that these are refugees, stateless. Sorry to cut you off. I just wanted to add those. I just wanted to add those stats. No, that's all really good stuff. And so with that too, and correct me if I'm wrong, like most of them can't leave, right? Because um, like they're trapped by at all the borders. So like, yeah, there's been a 15, 15 year blockade, Mm -hmm. 15 year blockade on air, land and sea. And it's not to say that nobody can get out for any reason, but it's it's hard for uh, Gazans to even get into a hospital in Jerusalem because they can't get the paperwork approved to go for necessary medical procedures often. So to get out of the country and get back in to really kind of travel freely is extraordinarily difficult. And, and it's just not even within the realm of contemplation for most Palestinians there. Very good. I don't know if I wanted to keep asking questions or just keep giving us the education because I mean, this, really <laughs> no, this, this is really important and really we'll good. We'll school so, you. 
So, okay, so let's go, let's, let's take it now because I want to talk a little bit about refugees. So right now, currently in 2021, you have 5.6 million Palestinian refugees registered with the UN in Lebanon, Jordan, the West Bank, Gaza, and Syria. Okay, you have 58 refugee camps scattered throughout the Middle East. That, that, that's How a lot million? to wrap your mind around. Five million, she said, over 5.6. 5. 5. 5. 5. 5. 5. 5. 5 and a half. So that's yeah, five and a half million. So part of the definition for Palestinian refugee means that you pass your refugee status on to your descendants because you don't have citizenship. So we're talking 73 years of refugee status. Like Palestinians are the oldest um, and they're tied with Syrian refugees now for the largest refugee group in the world. So you're talking, I work with third and fourth generation refugees that their, their grandparents were displaced, their parents were born in a camp, they were born in a camp. And that's all they know. Wow. So what's that like then working with them? Like, well, uh, yeah, it's almost so like a when, Stockholm syndrome thing, I would imagine. <laughs> if, that's, if, if, that's all, if that's all you've known, you've, if all you've known was like the occupation, all you've known is being a refugee. Like, yes, you have hope for something else, but like, man, three generations, like, how do you still have hope for something different? Well, yeah, I, I think let, let's talk a little bit about what it means to be a refugee and what it means to be stateless, because this is this is harder for Americans. Mm -hmm. Like when you don't have citizens, so you don't have citizenship in any country. So that means you are not afforded the rights of any country. You do not participate in the social, economic, political makeup of any country. You do not have a passport. So you do not travel freely. A lot of times like in Lebanon or Jordan, you can get paperwork um, to maybe get approved so you can travel, but that's, especially in Lebanon, that's rare. Um, you don't have a bank account. You're not allowed to own a business. In Lebanon, you're not allowed to um, participate in 70 different professions. You can't be a doctor or a lawyer in Lebanon if you're Palestinian. So, so those are some of the basic human rights. Did I forget something? Those are some of the basic human rights that refugees lack. And then when you think about 73 years of it, yeah, it's it's. I know when I when I give people stats, it's it's overwhelming. It, it really I have is. a question. Oh, I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question. So the five point six million refugees. These are the Palestinian refugees. You said fifty eight camps across the Middle East. Are those fifty eight camps just the Palestinian camps, or yeah. that include the Syrian? Those are, those are fifty eight Palestinian. Palestinian. So that yeah. doesn't count the Syrian refugee no. camps. Okay, no, no. And, and of course, in, in Lebanon, you do have an influx in Palestinian refugee camps of Syrians and of um, Palestinian refugees from Syria. So you have, an, they were displaced in Syria, and now they're displaced again in Lebanon because of a Syrian conflict. It's nuts. It is nuts. And the United States played what part in creating that? <laughs> in in creating I, I mean that's that's a that's a that's a pretty heavy complicated topic you know we I will say 
UNRWA, which is the UN Relief and Works Agency that was set up in 1949 to address the Palestinian refugee crisis. They do relief, um, they provide services, basic services for Palestinian refugee camps. Education. Education, healthcare. Um, They are the only, uh, one of the only forms of legal employment for Palestinian refugee. They hire, I think they have it. This is before COVID numbers guys. But it was over 30,000 Palestinian refugees were legally employed by UNRWA. Um, So the United States, starting with Harry Truman in 1949, have supported. We've been the major contributor to funding. Um, And that ended with with, uh, the Trump administration in 2017, 2018. I can't remember which year it was. I think it was 17, where they pulled... um, all funding for UNRWA and it was three, 320 million, 320 million, something like that. Um, and, and since then UNRWA has been struggling. Now, I, I mean, I've been on the ground and Steve can tell you as well, like UNRWA can do some good work, but I've seen a lot of corruption um, as you do with UN agencies, as you do with NGOs, when you're working with with um, that kind of, that level of um, poverty. So, uh, you know, the US said that they were corrupt, all of these things, that's why they pulled it. I mean, it was political. It it was to kind of erase refugee status um, because the refugees are a sticking point. Um, They were using it to to squeeze places like Jordan because they wanted places like Jordan, Egypt uh, and Syria to basically say, hey, well, nobody's taking care of these Palestinians. So there was a pressure move to try and get them to accept the Palestinians as citizens of their own countries. I mean, it would be like as if if someone came in, if China came in and invaded the United States and then, uh, you know, then they put the squeeze on Ireland, you know, to make Suzanne and I and you guys citizens in Ireland just because, well, you know, you're... um, You speak English. You speak English, you know. You eat pork. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's crazy. And what does Israel have to do with all this? Well, aside from the fact that that's where they're originally displaced from. Yeah. I mean, the the Israelites did have control over that land a long time ago. And then of course, you know, through uh, that land has been contested for centuries, right? Egypt controlled it. Jebusites controlled it. Nope, not really. Didn't so, the Israelites originally take it from the Canaanites? Well, okay, let's let's go back into some more recent history. Let, let, let's only go back a couple hundred years, okay? Let's, <laughs> let's do that. So Palestine was under the Ottoman Empire, okay? And you had... For like two seconds. For like 400 years. <laughs> so there's that. Um, but Call so yourself you had, a history nut, Chris. <laughs> so you had Arab, Palestinian Arabs... Um, Muslims who are Muslims, who were Jewish, who were Christian, that all lived together relatively peacefully. So things changed during World War I when the Ottomans lost control of the Middle East. And, and, and Steve mentioned that it was under the British mandate. So um, if you've ever seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, which is still one of my all-time favorite movies because Omar Sharif is amazing. <laughs> But it still does that time period justice. Like the British asked the Arabs to revolt against the Ottomans. So they had another front during World War I. 
And then they promised them their independence. And that was never going to happen. So not only so then Britain and France chopped up the Middle East into mandates that they then governed. Colonialism 101. So um, where was I going with that? I just get the question was about Israel. So I think you were getting. Yeah. So, okay, I'm getting there. But I, I forgot why I went off. Central on conflict. Central conflict. That's what it is. Like this isn't. Everybody wants to talk that it's like Chris they've been fighting for. Yeah, they've been fighting for thousands of years. No, this is the past one hundred years when everything changed. So the state of Israel was created, and you know those seven hundred and fifty thousand Palestinians that were displaced in nineteen forty eight were never compensated for their loss of home, their livelihood, their land. It was just taken. And they were not allowed to return. And th- then their land was settled, quote unquote, by settlers. Yeah, yeah it was. And so part of y- you, you've heard the, the term right of return, right? Like everybody talks about that, but nobody really knows exactly what that means. Um, Steve, do you want to give the legal? <laughs> <laughs> I don't like, know that I have that. Yeah. So it's, it's essentially under international law, refugees from uh, anywhere. Um, have the right to go back to their homes just by virtue. If you flee a war, it doesn't mean that, you know, that's, that your house belongs to someone else now. And I think what, one, one thing about this conflict a lot of people don't realize is uh, in, under the laws of war, since World War II, it's no longer lawful to uh, obtain territory through military conquest. So we go into Iraq and we, you know, took over Iraq and military occupied that. We militarily occupied it. Um, that doesn't mean that can become American soil. If we had decided to annex that any part of Iraq to the United States, that's a war crime. And so a lot of people are just like, oh, well, they won the war. They did this. That's not the well, That was hundreds of years ago. That's what we did. But after World War II and because of World War II, we agreed as a world, the United Nations said that is not allowable anymore. So as it concerns the Palestinian refugees specifically, um, the UN General Assembly uh, in 1948 in December, so about seven months after um, Israel was formed, and the, the they call it al-Nakba, the catastrophe in Arabic of, of uh, these people being expelled from their lands. Um, the UN said that refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so at the earliest practicable date and that compensation should be paid for the property of those choosing not to return and for loss of or damage to property, which under principles of international law or equity should be made good by the governments or authorities responsible. So in other words, it said, if they were driven out by the war, they have a choice. They can come back or they can choose not to come back. But if they choose not to come back, the people who drove them out have to compensate them. Well, nobody's been allowed back. And nobody's been compensated, not one person. So, um, and I should say that that little blurb that I read you there—that's that's not binding law. It was a—it's like we have like in America, we have like oh, Congress passes a bill, and then there's a sense of the Congress uh, resolution where it's non-binding. This would be kind of equivalent to a non-binding resolution in that context, but it accurately reflects the content of applicable international law. 
So since it's non-binding, <laughs> so since it's non-binding, then the refugees have no foot to stand on. Then, like they, no, no, really no, no. It's 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 what they, that did. That resolution summed up what would have been a little more complex worded in international law. So okay. it's it's it talks it it's a, it's an encapsulation, a summary of what more complicated law says is required. So okay. So, it's so what the, happens it's when they stand up for themselves good. with that? Well, sorry, so, what, so here's, yeah, so here's part of the, the problem. So you asked about in your state of Israel. Um, they block that. They have not held up that UN resolution. They do not allow, as Steve said, not one single Palestinian has returned to their home and not one single Palestinian has been compensated for the loss of their homes. So knowing that that's part of the, the root of this is important. Right. Okay. So when they don't have anything, and then the place where they have to flee to basically says, no, you're almost subhuman. You are definitely not a first-class citizen. You're a third or fourth class citizen. You can't do this job. You can't own this property. You can't have a bank account. Things that we just don't even think about. I mean. Who's saying that? Is Palestine saying that or is Israel saying that? Saying what? Or is that like Jordan saying property that, yeah. or whatever? When you are a refugee, you don't have the rights in the country. So when the, the, the Palestinian diaspora that is in Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan are not allowed those basic human rights. So Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan are just simply saying, you're not our people, you're second-rate citizens. Uh, you know, you're, they're, not uh, even, well, they're not even second-rate citizens. So do they have apartments? Do they have, do they sleep in tents? What, like, what are they, how are they living just in those camps you're talking about? Yeah. So, so the refugee camps were of course started um, in, you know, mostly 1948 and 1967 when the next influx came in, of course they were tents and now they look like, you know, it depends on which country you're in, but if you're in Beirut, you're in a very urban setting. So they're basically slums now. Okay. And in Jordan, they're a little bit more, um, deserty <laughs> how do i want to say it because you're they're in the middle of the desert you know they're in the middle of the desert um and they have problems with you know you want to talk about covid about a pandemic in a refugee camp so one of the camps that i work in in Shatila camp in central beirut it's less than a kilometer and it has over thirty thousand inhabitants right now okay also you don't have clean water provided for you you would actually have to buy water or so, electricity really right intermittent at best so maybe four hours a day okay so now with covid you have families living together in one to two room structures 10 people possibly 10 or more so if somebody gets covid they don't they can't socially distance they can't so then the whole family gets covid so that's been part of the problem with, you know, with with the pandemic that you're seeing like in India and places that are densely populated. Also with a lack of water, it's really, really, it's just added another layer um, of suffering. I mean, we've all suffered through it, but for marginalized groups that are that densely populated, it's, yeah, it's bad. 
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. So, I have questions, obviously, but... um, (laughs) I bet you do. How, what's the, what's the hope here? What's the, so do we need to have new legislation basically like giving um, refugees rights? Cause like, why, why do we think it's okay to say that refugees aren't human? Like where did, where, when was that decided? And, and, and how is that, how is everyone just okay with that? Yeah. I mean, this is a hard, hard topic. Um, like what's the hope? Uh, I, I mean, I find hope in, in Palestinians themselves. You know, I see so many of my Palestinian friends, like you think you're having a bad day, <laughs> you know, and I see what they get up every day and have to face and they continue to do that. Um, and they continue to just live in the face of that kind of oppression. Um, I don't know, Steve. I mean, on a political level, I am not hopeful. I mean, I, I just don't, there's, I don't see it happening anytime soon that there's a viable political solution for uh, the refugee situation. I mean, the only way to do it maybe is make it a human rights. Cause I mean, like if enough people like woke up to like what was going on. I mean, like it could be any of us. You'd have I mean, to get the Jordanian and Syrian government and all those people to, to actually do that kind of stuff. And I, I mean, I don't know how the United States influences those kind of countries like that. But, but here's the thing. So why should like in each country, it's very, very complicated of why Palestinians are not yeah. citizens there. So why should those countries be expected too. It's like the same thing. Like, let's say we have a war in the United States, which maybe is not too far off. But what if, what if we have a war and everybody's like, oh, we'll just go to Canada and Canada should take us all because we all speak English and we're all kind of the same. It's not it's not really viable. Like in Lebanon, you have a very fragile um, religious makeup. You have you have a small Christian population right now. You have the majority are Shia Muslims. And then you have Sunni. So Palestinians are Sunni, okay? 
So if they get citizenship, they're going to they're going to off the balance of power in Lebanon, who has the majority then, then it'll be the Sunnis. So you have different various reasons of why. And then there's there's that hope for um, different Arab countries and they use the right of return also for not giving them citizenship. Like, no, they're supposed to go back. We're keeping Palestine alive, that kind of Haven't stuff. most of the people though that, that were displaced 70 some odd years ago, they probably passed by now. You know, and I'm not saying that their children shouldn't inherit their land or whatever it was they owned before Israel, you know, became a state uh, uh, or a country rather. But um, you know, are are the people that are not born in Syria, for example, that are Palestinian refugees, do they not have a completely different identity? Uh, you know, as opposed to what their probably by now great grandparents well, have. That's an actually that's a good question. Yeah, no, no, their identity is Palestinian because that's culturally speaking, there, there's differences between Syrian culture and Palestinian culture. They live in refugee camps in Syria. So they're confined to living in areas that are only full of the people who have the same, a similar background. Now, and, and to be clear, in Syria, before their, their civil war, Palestinians had more rights than they do in Lebanon and Jordan. Like they were able to get an education and work legally. Um, they still had refugee status, but so you have different problems in, in the different countries that they're in, okay? They, they face different challenges. But yeah, like in, in, in Lebanon and in the camps, um, you know, the, there's a different, there's a Palestinian accent in Arabic versus a Lebanese accent, okay? Mm -hmm. It's still very, they're still very culturally Palestinian. In Jordan, it's the same thing. So there's a, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's, it, there's not a, because they're in their own communities, um, you know, they very much still identify with that. They still know that their only way they're ever going to get those rights of citizenship are to have a Palestinian state, to get back, um, you know, something. Even though, you know, for most of them, frankly, there's, there's little to no hope of recovering anything uh, of their families that is in the area that is now the state of Israel. Right. So that that's what they're entitled to under the law and what they dream of is unfortunately very different from what is probably possible. Um, even under the best case scenarios, just there's, there's too much in terms of the geopolitical forces at work. Um, you know, countries like America and Germany in particular, um, and India now are very, very pro, um, pro-Israel in terms of shielding um, the Israeli government, you know, in terms of, of actions that it might take um, that would be disadvantageous to Palestinians and in particular to the refugees. I, I also, because I, I know we don't have a lot of time and I know actually you guys really want to talk about the current situation in Israel-Palestine, and we've covered the diaspora, right, of Palestinian refugees. But, you know, Steve and I have been talking all, all week for, for him not being a good friend. <laughs> we've, been, like, we've been on the phone a lot this week, and we've both been on Twitter a lot, which Twitter is an, I mean, it's a cesspool, but it's an excellent source to, to get news of what's actually going on on the ground. Um, and I think part of what's so 
I mean, it's painful to watch what's going on. It was painful for me, for someone that works with Palestinians, but, um, and I see what my Palestinian friends are going through right now. Um, it doesn't matter if you are Palestinian who, Palestinian American or Palestinian Canadian, um, they're hurting, watching what's happening to, to their people. And I think we need to keep that in mind and be respectful. Um, but, you know, we've been talking all week about, because everybody wants to talk about different things, but nobody's really talking about the occupation of the, of the West Bank. Um, and I, I, think, I think that's important because I think until that piece, until you have the right of return of Palestinian refugees, so we figure out what we're doing with, until they get basic human rights, right? And citizenship. And actually so many of my Palestinian friends are like, we just, citizenship's not the thing. We want basic rights. What basic rights do you have? Um, but until we like actually address the occupation um, of how long? It's been since 67. Oh, since 67, 53 years. 53 years. Um, this, this is gonna continue. So it's not, it's not a surprising thing of what's happening, unfortunately. This is gonna continue because we haven't dealt with, with the actual oppression of Palestinians that are still in Palestine. Well, it's so not let's... like Palestine refugees are the ones that are, you know, tossing missiles over at the Iron Dome or anything like, so, so I mean, you know, when, when we talk about Palestine and Israel conflict, as far as that goes, um, that doesn't really have much to do with the refugees, except for the fact that the refugees are a product of Israel, correct? Except that the, the majority... Just the right of return ones, yeah, or something like that. Well, but except that the, the, the majority of the population in Gaza are refugees, yep. and they're trapped in there without basic rights. And so <laughs> with four hours of electricity a day, with, with I mean, 90% of their water is undrinkable in Gaza. And now you're watching the operation going down. And Steve and I both, if you go through Twitter, you've, we've seen horrendous, horrendous footage um, of, of children, of, of children dying, of, of just the, the misery and the, the inflict, I, I, I mean, how they've inflicted even more suffering. And so remembering that those people are refugees is incredibly important because when people say Gaza, they say Hamas. Mm -hmm. they, and so you can dehumanize a refugee by just saying Hamas instead of realizing who actually lives in Gaza. And and people just seem to think, I think they're like, hey, if you're in Gaza, you're Hamas. And while the numbers are, are kind of uncertain, they're difficult to ascertain because Gaza is the way it is. I mean, the indications are that the support for Hamas is roughly about 20% in Gaza at this point. It's very, very low. It's, there's incredible dissatisfaction, but there's not been an election for anybody to replace them because um, they control whether or not that happens. So you've got a low support among the population um, for the group that is you know, launching these rockets. But, I, but if you, Americans just get really stuck on Hamas and they get stuck on, I was talking to, to maybe, it was, maybe it was you earlier. No, it was you because I was like, when we, Americans are very generous, especially when there's a tragedy, right? Like 
when the Beirut blast happened last year, people just gave generously to us and we were able to like get some stuff done there and provide things because people want to help when there's, when I any mean, people are contacting me about Gaza too, like how, what can we do? What can we do? Um, Americans are very generous, but there's something about marginalized people um, and, and Omar and Elizabeth, I think you can relate to this as, as Christians being in missions years ago, right? And coming out of it. But marginalized people and the poor have to be pristine. They have to be worthy. Um, they have to be good enough to um, get our help and our compassion. And I think when you, you, you just say Hamas, you can dehumanize an entire Palestinian population to where they don't deserve help and they don't deserve um, our compassion. And I think that's what I've seen working with Palestinians over the years. That's what I've seen, um, which makes me wanna like break down and cry right now. Um, instead of realizing who they are as people, what they're lacking in basic human rights and why aren't we fighting for them just to have the same rights that we have and to live in safety and security. Yeah, that goes back to my question about like the hope and like what what is going to happen if we don't believe that there's enough incentive for these different countries or world powers to to make the right decision because when it always boils down to money, you know. And so like if there's not enough incentive for them to see this large population of people as people, then it's almost like is the next level of hope. And like you said, your hope is in um, the people themselves. So like a grassroots movement, like an awareness, whether it's through social media or what is it that like I, you can no, do to try to make things better? Like think, that's, that's where I'm like. Education is the key. That's why I focus on it. I, I, I think when people understand, like I posted something on Facebook yesterday about the neck bay. Because yesterday was the anniversary. Steve said it briefly, it means the catastrophe. So the day after the state of Israel celebrates its birthday, the Palestinians commemorate the Nekbe, which, which means that they commemorate that they've lost their entire country every year. So, you know, it's, it's, and people were responsive to what I had to say because I just listed out some facts, like because the Nekve didn't stop in 1948, it's continuing on with the refugee crisis, with the um, occupation with Gaza. It happens daily for Palestinians. I think that's what people don't tend to recognize as much about that is that this isn't something that happened in the past. There's a very current reality that is driving the situation. And when somebody says like, well, they're launching missiles, I, I want to say, okay, use your head a minute and tell me why would they be launching missiles? Well, because they hate them. Why might they launch missiles and hate them? And you have to go behind those two questions and you look into the ground and you see that there is this dispossession, that there is this refugee problem and that there's an ongoing growing dispossession. And I mean, under people don't like to use the phrase, but ethnic cleansing is the accurate legal term for what's been going on. And it's still going on. Do you want to give them the legal definition of that? Sure. Yeah. Because, because, just... people, because it's a charged term, but when I teach, I, I we are using it because it is it legally fits what's happening. Can yeah. we clarify real quickly who we're talking about though when we say that? So you're saying that Israel is committing ethnic cleansing, is that correct? The state of Israel. The state of Israel 
So, um, and it's especially, and it's connections to private settler groups. Um, okay. But ethnic Which, cleansing is under the United Nations definition, it's rendering an area homogenous, ethnically homogenous, by using force or intimidation to remove people from another ethnic or religious group. So, um, I mean, by displacing someone or saying, hey, with this, that we're going to uh, declare. So one of the things the Israel, Israelis do in the West Bank is they'll take an area and they'll declare it as militarily important area um, or, or archaeologically important, and then they'll boot all the Palestinians off of it. And then lo and behold, a few years later, there's some apartments built there. Yep. <laughs> so so what we're seeing in East Jerusalem right now with um, Sheikh Jarrah, which is a Palestinian neighborhood, which they're... Um, they want to, it's in the Israeli Supreme Court right now, whether they're going to um, kick out, was it? Six families. Six families, eight, I thought it was eight, six or eight, I can't remember. Six families out of the neighborhood. So those, those families were placed in that neighborhood by the Jordanians in 1948 because they were displaced from their villages during the conflict. And now they're at risk of being displaced again. And legally, the reason that that happens is because the Israeli government passed a law that said any uh, Israeli Jew who lost their home during the 1948 war, because there were Jews in Israel before 1948, a whole bunch of them, excuse me, any Jew who lost their, uh, their home in that war can apply to get it back. In other words, hey, I lost my home in the war. I became a refugee, even though the state of Israel won that war. There were Jews who became kind of displaced internally, and the law says they can go back and get their lost property. Well, there is no equivalent law if you are not a Jew. It applies only to Israeli Jews. It doesn't apply to Israeli-Palestinian citizens. And 20%, a lot of people don't know this, 20% of Israel is Palestinian ethnically in, in terms of like citizenship inside their own borders. So it's... Um, the laws are, are problematic in a, in a big way, and they kind of they do tend to reinforce um, the gradual demographic shift um, from Palestinian population to Israeli Jewish population. So, are you saying that Israel takes in takes on Palestinian refugees? Is that correct? No, 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 no. So when when the when the war happened in forty eight, there were all, the land that was allotted for an Israeli state had Palestinians living on it. Hundreds of thousands of them fled the war. Some did not. Those who did not became citizens of the new Israeli state. And that's today 20% of the population. So it's a huge minority. And they're treated as second-rate citizens, I imagine? Yeah, they. it's not as bad as being a refugee or being in the West Bank, um, but there are definite problems with that. I mean, for instance, there's like... Neighborhoods are off limits to you if you're not Jewish. Can't go buy a house there. Things like that. I mean, it's, it's very reminiscent of Jim Crow in some ways. That's really interesting. So, um, I want to ask you reading. more about the occupation. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, babe. I think you're. No, go. Up too. Or is it mine? Yeah, it is. I don't know. Go ahead. No, go ahead, babe. Please. Well, I, I'm reading this book called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents I by read. Isabel it's, Wilkerson. Yes, it's so good, Elizabeth. It, 
It is so good. I'm, I'm, I'm about, I'm listening to the audio version. I am 90% through. And so like what you guys are saying, it's just is fascinating to me because the author, what she did was she explains the caste system of the United States, but basically racism and shows how what we would consider racism here in America is, is parallel to the caste system in India. Um, Along with that, she shows how the Nazi Germans back in World War II used our caste system, our United States caste system, and how we um, uh, set up our laws, the Jim Crow laws and whatnot. And they said, hey, this is a really good idea. Let's do this and we'll do it towards the Jews. And now here it's like the Jews are doing the same thing, essentially. Like this is a whole nother set of caste system. Yeah, it's really um, it just. It's really, really, this one almost feels, this one feels like more on a global scale, almost just because it's, it is, there are so many nations involved and it almost feels like there's like Omar is trying to ask, like, is there hope? What's the, how do we do this? Like it's, it's going to take more than just one country changing their ideas of caste and breaking that all down to find some type of solution, right? I I mean, yeah, it's, let's just back up because I think this is really charged what we're getting into now because, you know, I always teach on transgenerational trauma when we talk about Palestinian refugees or if I talk about how the conflict impacts them because it goes both ways for the Israelis as well. And I think that when you have that much trauma um, it's really, really hard to, um, your, your identity forms out of that. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a charged topic. And I just, it, it's funny, like I even had a conversation with someone today who turned out to be Jewish American. And when I actually, I decharged, I, it was charged. And I just, I think when she realized that I wasn't ripping on I wasn't anti-Semitic. I wasn't ripping on the Jewish community. Um, it, and I think that's really important because I, I know I'm going, I'm circling around because I'm just formating yeah. what I want to say, because I want to be careful because this is so painful for so many people involved and, and people, um, especially the Jewish community here in the United States, um, we need, because anti-Semitism is, is on the rise and we need to be really careful about that, about the Holocaust, about remembering all of that um, and making sure that, you know, the Jewish community has a safe and secure place to live. But it also doesn't give them the right to just run rampant and take human rights away from another people group. And then that's where we need to hold them accountable in. Um, But I think- When you talk about- Is that a global thing though? Like a global group that needs to hold them accountable or- I think the United States. We're the only country with enough power to do it. And it will not happen until there is a substantial shift in public opinion that we would use our power to kind of uh, change that situation or push for a change in it. Um, Right now, there's just the, 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 the voting power of white evangelicals is far too powerful. And they are the the electoral force that drives that policy. I, I want to touch on that just a second, if you don't mind, 
you said why evangelicals are kind of controlling the narrative here and and they're certainly in you know pro-israel um wouldn't you say possibly i don't know that none of this would be an issue if religion weren't involved you know it's not i i don't want to i don't want to say it's not a religious conflict like the origins of this is not religion. isn't it though no it's political. i mean it's kind of a crappy piece of land right no it's not actually that's that's the issue it's not but but like we we talked a little bit about the beginning of of it it was political it was colonialism. It was imperialism of, of Europe coming in and chopping up the Middle East for themselves. That's what we're talking about. And I think we always want to turn it, it's easier to turn it into a religious conflict. Like Jews, Muslims, they hate each other. Actually, my Palestinian friends don't hate Jews. Okay, they just, they just don't. But here, so let's turn it to the United States. Here, it might be more about religion, right? Because you have evangelical Christians that believe in dispensationalism that, you know, the second coming of Christ will come. So we have to support Israel no matter what. And to me, I don't know if I should say this. Should I say it? I don't know. Of course you should say it. I'm going to say it. To me, that theology is another form of anti-Semitism because you're using an entire people group as a means to an end to your theology. Like, it's not about wanting safety and security for them. It's not about actually knowing them. It's, they're an object. They're an object for your theology. That's I don't know. That's point. probably the most con- I mean, controversial I mean, thing I've yeah, ever I mean, said. <laughs> I think the other thing to note is, I mean, Israel is among and perhaps maybe the most secular society in the world. Um, it's an incredibly secular state. I mean, you think about people in America talk about like, oh, France, you know, religion's dead in France. There's no, it, it's, France is more religious than, you know, Paris is more religious than Tel Aviv. It, it's, you yeah. Know, and the, and the fact that, you, you know, they built the state of Israel on socialism. Yeah. Secular socialism. It's secular it socialism. A, a religious project. It, you know, they, they built it. They had kibbutzes, which were communities where they would, that's how they built a modern day state in the amount of time they did in the, in the middle of the Middle East. And it, it also goes back to like at the end of the day, why are why is there an ongoing conflict? It's not because there's a difference in religion because you have uh, Jewish Israelis and Muslim uh, Palestinians and as well as Christian Palestinians. A lot of people don't know this. There's over 100,000 Christian Palestinians uh, in, in, in uh, the Holy Land. Yeah. So, but you know, that's not the issue. The issue goes back to the occupation. If there wasn't an occupation going on, would there still be problems with Muslim uh, extremists? Yeah, absolutely. That would be a problem. But it's a whole different ballgame when there's an occupation going on and an entire people are dispossessed wholesale. I'm glad you brought it back to the occupation, though, Steve, because that uh, justifies me asking my question that I was going to ask like 10 minutes ago. Um, I'm here for you. (laughs) I I appreciate it, man. We're on that level. So, So this is my question, because I think a lot of people... Like you were saying, uh, Suzanne, that like we don't really understand what that even means in America. Like the idea. So, do you have like maybe some personal stories of maybe some refugees that you know or something you can share through who ended up losing their land or who were displaced like that, and maybe have gone back to see that now like somebody else is living in their home or anything 
any stories well, like that? No, they haven't gone back. I mean, they haven't gone back. That's that's the issue. Like they haven't gone back. And yeah, I have hundreds of stories. You know, when I go into a home in a in a in a refugee camp, I mean, Palestinians are really hospitable, and and as a foreigner, they always welcome me in, and you know, they'll ply me with cup, and they've done it with Steve too, with tiny cups of tea and coffee and sweets and. And then they'll tell me what village they're from. They'll bring out keys to their homes, maps, deeds. You told us this beautiful Christmas story last time about how they came and like, or maybe it was Thanksgiving. I don't remember, but either way, they gave you like a a Western holiday. Oh, that was, you know, it was good. It was a very good friend of mine whose family is Muslim. And I was alone there. It was a couple of years ago in Beirut. And her, her mother invited me and I love her mother, her mother invited me for Christmas and they don't celebrate Christmas. And her mother actually went to one of the fancier grocery store chains. She's like, I know Christians eat turkey for Christmas. So she had a turkey ordered and in Lebanon, it's a little bit different. They stuff it with chestnuts and stuff like that. And that's what they did for me as a guest, but they were Lebanese. So (laughs) some of them do celebrate Christmas. We have a friend who's in Jordan, and he was telling us that the majority of Christmas trees sold in Oman are purchased by Muslims, not not the uh, the small Christians in Jordan. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I think when, when when we're talking about Palestine, you know, they haven't gone back to see their home. That's the dream. That's what they tell their children. That's what they tell their grandchildren. Um, the reason I the reason I ask, I've been binging a podcast called unsettled this week and um they get some amazing interviews with people um some of them being refugees and some of them being um in political spheres and things like that and so that's where i've been getting a lot of my education and one one man told the story and um i'm gonna kind of retell it just because it helped helped me kind of understand more of like what the occupation like actually is because this guy was talking about how he had this amazing uh orange orchard right like where, where he lived and and it was in israel or whatever and then when he was forced out and the reason he he didn't he chose to leave because the safety for his family so it's like it wasn't like they came to his house and like forced him out but there was bombing going on there was a lot of violence and so he he made the decision to leave not knowing that they he would never be able to come back and so i guess it's one of the things where he got lucky able to cross the border again like years and years later and went to his orange orchard and saw that there was a jewish guy who was living there like running the orchard and basically profiting off of all of his work and all of the different stuff and so it's just like that so putting that in like terms that maybe we can understand because like being American, hardworking, you know, everything is mine. It's that, that whole freedom mentality, you know, like, and to just be up and displaced from everything that you know, that is yours. Um, and now it belongs to somebody else and you're just supposed to be okay with that and not want to hear fucking yeah, missiles you're somebody. Okay like, I, yeah. You're just supposed to be okay with it. Period. Like you're not supposed to fight back. You're not supposed to raise a voice. You're just supposed to be okay with it. And we need and, to think about that. And, and and on top of that too, Sue, and you guys, Sue, you can talk more about this because isn't there currently a, uh, like a like 11 year, 12 year protest that's been going on? It started out as a, as a March 
um like they were gonna march back to get their land or whatever oh, but they've been held march. up at yeah the great march and so like uh, and where that's become violent and stuff as well but it's 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 a peaceful movement for like 90 percent of yeah yeah there's there's you know there's before i forget also the podcast rethinking palestine okay omar is really really good really really helpful um so i recommend that but um yeah, the great there's lots of examples of nonviolent resistance um, in Palestine, in the West Bank, during the Intifadas. There's a great movie called The Wanted 18, and it's about Beit Sahur, which is a Christian village near Bethlehem. And there they were famous for nonviolent resistance. And there one of the forums was to buy cows so they could have their own milk and not buy Israeli milk. Um, so these are the kind of stories that we don't hear because we have to make it dramatic and the violence sells. Um, but there's example after example after example of, of nonviolent resistance for Palestinians as a, as a viable means of fighting the occupation. If you want to watch a, a good but definitely unsettling movie about this, Five Broken Cameras. Yeah. It's about a village that had weekly nonviolent protests in the West Bank and what happened there. Um, I highly recommend it. It's, it's, I highly recommend not doing it before something where you're going to go be social. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a jarring movie, but it's, it's, it's very raw and real. Well, that's interesting, too, because I heard that that has become a tactic that a lot of Palestinians are using is instead of using weapons to fight back, they're fighting back with the camera. And like, as I like their defense, kind of like over here in the States with a lot of black people, like being oppressed by cops, like they find like, you don't shoot back, but you bring out a camera. Cause that way, anything that happens, you can show the oppression. First the hand. phone, the phone is changing things. And I, and I think that's, you know, it's been interesting. Um, you know, I, this is how many operations I've been through in Gaza like in 2009, I was in Lebanon. Um, and the other thing you should keep in mind, if there's a Israeli military operation in Gaza, it affects all of the camps throughout the Middle East. Um, so that was 2009, 2014, there was another massive one. And this, this time it feels a little different. This time I, I see more people speaking up like even just the protests that the demonstrations that we saw in London, in Toronto, even in Denver, there was like a thousand people on the streets um, supporting Palestinians. That is a little bit different than what I've seen over 17 years. And I, I accredit some of that. I credit some of that to um, the camera and the phone. Because I was going to say, yeah, anytime you get the arts involved, like camera or whatnot, you're going to get... Uh, people that are going to notice. And it seems to me like the church of, uh, you know, the conservatives in this country are pro-Israel and the church of the, you know, left church of the conservatives. Are, that sounds like a horrible church. I don't want to be a part of the church of the conservatives, but <laughs> a name. And the church of the leftists are uh, pro-Palestine. It seems like that's kind of uh, where it's going. So uh, it's it's interesting. Some, some are some. There's a lot of liberals that are real uncomfortable with Palestine. Trust me, there's there's they're real uncomfortable with with Palestinian narrative. Yeah. And I, I think too. I mean, it's it's a 
it's a little bit more, you'd be surprised, I think, at how many people are beginning to reconsider some of this. And some of that, I think, you know, Suzanne talked about the camera. I think the biggest thing ahead of the camera was Black Lives Matter in the U.S. That opened up a, a, a portion of the American public's mind to asking new questions and receiving new information about societal problems here. And it's really easy to kind of all of a sudden get news about Palestine and start asking the same questions and saying, wait a minute, like what's going on with Israelis and Palestinians? And and I think that's not necessarily, I mean, I, I agree certainly, you know, with Omar, it's largely right left in, in a lot of ways, but it's not entirely. I mean, um, I'm certainly not a leftist or anything close to it. I mean, I was a registered. He's a lawyer. I was a, <laughs> I was a registered Republican my whole life until they nominated Donald Trump in 2016. That'll do it. So I mean, so it's hard. It's, it's I would not call it an ideologically monolithic uh, movement. Yeah. But Chris is also right, though, as far as like um, a lot of the mainstream news media, um, depending on which one you're listening to, what what. what will spin it either pro-Israel or the whole free Palestine. There's, idea. there's, there's not a lot of pro, like even NPR, you guys, I get real frustrated with, um, with the news cycle here because it's not just Fox news. CNN does not do a good job. NPR does not do a good job. Even I was watching BBC yelling at the TV the other day, watching the, the BBC nightly news because it's very slanted. And I would add that, like, for your listeners, too. I mean, right now, Al Jazeera English is hitting it out of the park. Um, if you've got a smart TV, Amazon Fire or Roku, download the Al Jazeera English app, and their selection of programs is just they – have they have some really good coverage, like 25-minute spots um, – on what's happening over there. And it's really useful. And they're, they're editorially, they're a different animal than the Al Jazeera Arabic that we used to hear about a lot during uh, the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. But I, I, they do, they do a pretty good job. It's impressive. Is that not the building that was just blown up over there? Uh, it was AP. It was Al Jazeera and the AP. Yeah. And apparently other organizations as well. Yeah. I already had the guy who, ran the AP office there like the day before it said it tweeted something along the lines of, you know, at least, you know, the Israeli army knows where our office is and I can always go back there. And I feel like this is at least one place where I'm safe. <laughs> and then they gave him a, an hour's notice and they said, we're going to come in and empty the building out. Um, Al Jazeera lost about half of their video and photo archives in that they were only able to get part of it out. Uh, there's video floating around on Twitter of the building's owner pleading with Israeli military folks, just give us 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes, and they wouldn't do it. There's got to be something to erasing all that media that's beneficial for the Israeli narrative there, I would think. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to draw conclusions about their motives because there could be a lot of motives. Um, some are multiple nefarious ones. There could be some good ones in there. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say, well, just because they did it and it appears really bad, that doesn't mean that Hamas didn't have, you know, an office stuck in the basement or something. Um, that just means we have to ask other questions about international law and the laws of war. Um, but it, it's hard to take a lot of stuff at face value in this situation. Well, did we cover Omar, it all? <laughs> I think Omar's, oh. Omar's trying to say stuff, but he's muted. <laughs> Oh, you get you can keep going. No, it's fine. Yeah, you covered it all. This has been a really good conversation. I um, um, 
unless you have, you know, friends who spent 17 years in the Middle East, like we're lucky enough to have. Thanks for coming on and, and speaking with us. Uh, thanks for giving us different resources that we could check out. We will have those in the show notes. I saw Elizabeth writing them down as we were going. Can um, I do a little, can I do a little add to, because we're running yeah. in, in June, June 8th, we start running um, our classes online called Palestinian Refugees 101. And we'll go more in depth on the history, on the everyday life of a refugee. One of my friends who was displaced in Beirut, who now lives in America, will be doing a whole Q&A session so you can engage a Palestinian what it's like to be a refugee. And then we'll talk about COVID in the future. So I can give you the link, but if you just go to BeirutBeyond.org, you'll find the page and you just need to register. Classes are free. And when was the dates on that? June 8th, they run bi-weekly for four classes. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for doing this uh, again. And um, I learned a whole lot, Steve. It was great meeting you. Uh, thanks for putting up with us. And I mean, I know some of the questions may not have been very highbrow, but I, I'm really, really interested in this. And I think that like um, our listeners, it's, it's a perspective that we really don't get a whole lot unless you are actually actively searching it out and that's one thing i would encourage people to do if they've they heard something here they're not sure about research it on your own go find other sources um just i mean now's the time where um there's so much information out there whether it be like you know like she said twitter's a cesspool but it's firsthand accounts a lot of times and so um maybe step outside your comfort zone get some other information um but I, I appreciate this a whole lot. I love that. I love that you mentioned that the uh, mainstream media is having a really hard time of getting it right because, uh, you know, they're, they're all about sensationalism and, and, you know, now that Donald Trump is not in office, they need something to get those headlines to get those readers in there. And, and so they're going to do their best to try to, you know, use this to their advantage. And it's kind of sick, but uh, anyhow, Beirut. And I, just beyond- it, I just think it's a good thing to have in the back of your mind when you're listening to a news report that has anything to do with Palestinians. Just think about the context. Think about the context. Think about what the agenda is. It's really, really important. And I don't know if you mentioned this, follow Beirut and Beyond's Facebook page. Uh, There's regular updates on there. There's great information. Um, There's opportunity to to get in touch with us. And, and, you know, if you want to ask questions, you know, we, we provide a lot of teaching uh, resources throughout the year in terms of events where you can pick up some stuff firsthand and Q&A. So um, and we welcome that. It's awesome. Yeah, it's been great. And there was more questions and we could have got into like more definitions of, you know, like what even Hamas was. So um, maybe, uh, maybe down the road we can if there's it's a delicious interest, dip can, made from garbanzo beans mm. <laughs> yes with lots of garlic oh that's hummus oh my goodness <laughs> oh you guys now it's time for us to sign off <laughs> yes. well th- thank you once again and uh steve it's nice meeting you and uh to our listeners peace
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.